everybody, and welcome to the Cane and Rinse Podcast, Volume 10, Issue 478, where we are talking about Ghosts of Tsushima. Uh, joining me and my first time hosting, Brian Edwards, in Issue 478, are Ryan Heyman. Hello. And Leah Haydu. I'm, I'm holding up a leaf and trying to figure out which way the wind is blowing. Um, <laughs> it's not really working, but I'm, I'm going to uh, just let me know when I can put this leaf down. Um, I feel like I'm going to be here a while. <laughs> yeah, so we're coming together to uh, talk about uh, Sucker Punch's Ghost of Tsushima, um, released almost a year to the date from this date of recording. Um, just quick up top, as, as everybody um, should know, or if you're unfamiliar with the show and just listening the first time, this is your spoiler warning. We will be getting into the nitty gritty of Ghost of Tsushima today, and I uh, think that what will come up in the discussion is that there's a lot of story aspects in this that um, if you didn't experience in the game uh, that will probably get ruined for you here. So just your uh, spoiler warning up front. But uh, so what is Ghost of Tsushima? It's described by the developer. The year is uh, 1274 in the Kamakura era of Japan and the Mongol Empire has laid waste to entire nations along their campaign to conquer the East. Tsushima Island is all that stands between mainland Japan and a massive Mongol invasion fleet led by the ruthless and cunning general Kotun Khan. As Samurai Jin Sakai, players rise from the ashes to fight back. Honorable tactics won't lead you to victory. You must move beyond your samurai traditions to forge a new way of fighting, the way of the ghost, as you wage an unconventional war for freedom of Japan. Sucker Punch, the developer, a Western developer making uh, a game based in, in, in Japan, is something we'll be talking about a lot. Um, a lot of different talent at Sucker Punch came together from a lot of different famous game series and a lot of experienced people working on this game. Um, it lists several producers, a an, an absolute army of lead game designers. Um, uh, two of the people that we'll be talking about a lot throughout um, this podcast will be the two directors, uh, Nate Fox, um, who was a director in the Infamous series and some of the Sly Cooper games, and Jason Connell, who was also a director on the Infamous series. The game uh, has credited four writers, uh, Ian Ryan, who is credited as, as being a writer on Far Cry Primal, Star Wars The Old Republic, and Thief. Um, Liz Albee, who had credits writing for Far Cry 4 and Far Cry 5. Patrick Downs, uh, writing for Halo 5 and Just Cause 3, along with others. And then Jordan Lemus, who uh, wrote for Assassin's Creed Origins. So you kind of see a, a wide variety of Ubisoft, Bioware uh, background in the writing. Um, the game was composed by, uh, it has two composers credited, Ilan Eshkeri, who is most well-known for the Sim series before this game, and then also Shigeru Umobayashi, um, who was uh, pr- pr- primarily known for Tane Omakutori uh, before Ghost of Tsushima. And like I said before, uh, the game was released essentially um, one year from the date of recording, July 17th, 2020. Um, and then we will talk about the upcoming uh, director's cut that will be coming to the PS5 in the in the coming month. As far as reviews go, uh, generally v- very well received. Open Critic had it at an 85% among 181 reviews, with 88% of the critics recommending it. One of the more notable reviews, and this is something we're going to talk a lot about later, is that uh, Famitsu gave uh, Ghost, Ghost of Tsushima a f- perfect 40 out of 40. Um, it's only the third time that a Western game has gotten a perfect score alongside of the Elder Scrolls V Skyrim and Grand Theft Auto V. 
Like other reviewers, Famitsu found nothing odd or off-putting about the game's depiction of Japan. In fact, one of the subheadings in the review is, there is no sense of discomfort in this foreign-made Japanese world. It was also granted Famitsu's Game of the Year that year, uh, for last year, 2020. And then also, um, it was a, a recipient of another... Uh, smattering of awards, the Game Critic Awards, Game Awards, the Dice Awards, uh, BAFTA for audio. Up until March 2021, those are the most recent figures we can find uh, regarding sales for Ghost of Tsushima. It has sold a very healthy 6.5 million copies in the, the, I guess that would be the nine months of sales figures were available for, with it shipping um, 2.4 million units in the first three days, making it the fastest selling first party IP title that Sony's ever had. A lot of discussion about this game over the past year. Um, as far as our own personal histories, uh, Ryan, how did you find yourself coming to Ghost of Tsushima? It's a game that had been announced a long, long time before they released it. It was multiple years making the E3 rounds. And um, I mean, it's it's quite a quite a showpiece for a trade show type of uh, type of game. I was kind of curious about because it was one of those games also where you barely saw any gameplay up until like the weeks before it released. I know that games like that, you know, like cyberpunk, like tend to kind of raise a little alarm flags. <laughs> I don't know. Alarm flags. If that's even a term, they kind of raise <laughs> alarms for me. Um, it's like, if they're not showing you something, it's usually because there's a reason for them to not show you something. Right. Yeah. And so I was really kind of wary of this one up until PlayStation did one of those kind of dedicated state of play shows a week before. No, it would have been like a month before the game came out and gave like a good 15 minute overview. Yeah, that's the one where they kind of they went through like the combat, whether you're going yep, stealth yep. or. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I, I remember watching that, too. Yeah. And I think at that point, being able to see the gameplay, uh, it, it kind of contextualized everything, put everything into place. And I was thinking, you know what, I'm I'm kind of on board for this. You know, I. I I've been petitioning for a long time to have an Assassin's Creed game set in a more interesting, you know, non-white people history setting, which, you know, the Assassin's Creed series has been, even when they have non-white protagonists, it is always at the point at which those cultures come into contact with the white culture. And so I, I, I was just like hmm. really dying for something that just felt like different than the like white history that assassin's creed had always been giving us and seeing right, something that yeah. was a japanese story that took place you know uh, it was a, a war of different cultures but they were still cultures within this kind of east asian sphere um no you know white outside influence like it just felt very fresh um especially coming from a western studio and so you know kind of all that together like i was just curious enough um that i picked it up at launch and uh played it in the uh, in the days following launch day for Ryan, um, I have I have a similar uh, story like that for me. Leah, how did you come across the ghost? Were you were you and Lord Sakai roaming the the beautifully rendered fields on launch day? Pretty close to it, I think. Um, so I think um, what it was for me is that I'm very bad at stealth games, and for a long time I kind of thought that's what this was. And that is, as we'll talk about, that is a way that you can approach a lot of things in in this game. 
I think that when when things seem like that's what it's going to be, it takes a little bit more to kind of catch my attention because that's maybe not a strike against it exactly, but something, you know, I I like so many different kinds of games that it's difficult to sometimes narrow it down a little bit. So I would say that that kind of knocks it down the list a little bit if, if I perceive it to be something that is a, a stealth focused game. However, uh, I I am interested in Japanese history and culture. I don't know a ton about it, but uh, what what I do know, I have I've found to be uh, interesting and, and engaging. Um, so I, I think it was a combination of that and also the fact that this game just looks really pretty. Like it is a very good looking game. Yeah, those I think yep. were the things that drew me in. So I played Ghost of Tsushima probably a couple of months after launch uh so towards the kind of middle to end of um of 2020 and then i did a second playthrough leading up to this show where i um i I didn't go (laughs) it was painful for me to pass up a lot of the icons on the map because i'm very much a go to all the things and get them off my map uh Uh, type of person but yes i i did platinum this game uh when it came out i have gone back since as i said and did another playthrough did some of the multiplayer storyline i am looking forward to the uh the expansion that's coming out um because i enjoyed it quite a bit uh, so yeah, that's where I am with it. Nice. Uh, yeah, it sounds like the three of us had fairly similar experiences. The The only thing that, that I personally contextualize Ghost of Tsushima with is that it came out roughly two weeks before I had to return to work during the pandemic. So I, I was like pretty anxious about that in general. Uh, and Ghost of Tsushima kind of became that game that like I poured my anxious energy into. Um, and which is really nice because as you said, Leah, it does just have a ton of stuff to do. And uh, like you said, a, a very checklisty game, if that's the way you'd like to play it. And my brain very much wanted to play it that way. So, yeah, I finished it um, over the course of the, the few three or four weeks um, after it came out. I, I was surprised by its length, to be honest. Um, I think I ended up clocking about like 55, 60 hours on my first playthrough. And my plan was to go back and do an entire playthrough before this podcast, uh, but then they announced the expansion and a couple other things that we will talk about a little bit more later and the director's cut. So what I did do, though, over the last couple of weeks is I've gone back in and I've uh, I platinum the game, which I did not do the first not in my first go around and just kind of explored and kind of looked at the map, poked at the corners of the world and, and stuff. So um, I think now. My playtime's at like 65, 70 hours, something like that. And uh, and like you, Leah, I'm eagerly anticipating the um, the director's cut. I'm looking forward to seeing the things that they add and the changes they make. So, yeah, uh, the development of the game, there's been a lot written about uh, this game. And I think I think what Ryan said earlier is is probably a, a pretty good reason for that, is that it really did kind of have a long and I wouldn't say that the development process was public, but you you were aware of this game for quite a long time. So there was always any type of information that came out about it. There would be, you know, articles making the rounds of various sites. So um, a lot ended up getting out about this game. Um, and then afterwards, in the after release, uh, Sucker Punch has been fairly open in talking about their development process and their kind of ethos working through everything. So after Infamous Second Son, Sucker Punch was looking to develop uh, on a historical setting, and they actually considered pirates, uh, Scottish folk heroes Rob Roy and Three Musketeers as potential um, sources of inspiration, uh, which that would have, I think, 
uh, also with what Ryan said earlier, kind of changed some of the the mindset about about this game. What that would have been interesting, but uh, according to them, they stumbled upon the 13th century invasion of Sushima Island, and the idea kind of clicked into place. The mission focused uh, a team focused on the mission statement of a lone samurai survives the Mongol invasion and is forced to reinvent himself and save his island home. They've talked about it kind of at length about how they were not trying to make this to be a historically accurate uh, redepiction of the invasion of Tsushima, uh, but more just using that as the historical context to, to then tell Jin Sakai's story. Uh, Brian Fleming, a producer on the game, said on an annual basis, the island of Tsushima still commemorates the invasion and the brave defenders. So we scheduled a trip to be present during that celebration. During that research trip, they had a thousand, uh, excuse me, they captured thousands of images about uh, all the details and, and kind of, the feel of the island as they described it uh fleming said uh while we were getting this affirmation that we were managing to capture just effectively the essential color that people who were born and raised in japan see in their own home we talked about it a little bit before uh or i talked about should i say when talking about the famitsu scores but one of the things um and i think it's appropriate to talk about here is what do you guys think how did sucker punch a western studio managed to make a game that was not only well received in japan but it avoided kind of the typical disrespectful stuff that western studios often do when making an eastern based game like you didn't hear a lot at least very vocally the the criticism i mean the 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 discourse around the game was relatively devoid of criticism i mean some things about the gameplay but you didn't really hear much about cultural insensitivity yeah, I think they did their research and probably having Sony as their parent company, um, it, it probably helps having that some sort of a Japanese anchor up the line a little bit to kind of check things through and provide uh, resources and recommendations and stuff like that. I think, you know, whenever games that are made in Japan are set in the West, the inaccuracies are usually viewed as being like very kind of charming. <laughs> and quirky Mm. you know i think about like silent hill 2 and i think about deadly premonition or (laughs) metal wolf chaos like (laughs) all these games that are set in the west but are produced in japan i think people have a lot of fondness for whereas games that are made in the west and set in other cultures i think people are very sensitive to and i think rightly so because there is kind of a history of the west kind of exotifying other cultures and particularly in asian cultures there's the kind of orientalism that goes back to like uh the marco polo days and and goes all throughout the you know kind of demonization of people through world war ii and and a lot of kind of othering um a lot of kind of conflict between between the nations between the people that have kind of kept uh i don't know It, it means that any inaccuracies or any I don't want to even say inaccuracies because this game isn't striving to be an accurate game. It's just striving to be a game that has kind of like the right look and feel, but is meant to be kind of larger than life is meant to be kind of fantastical and poetic. Mm, I I, I think they were walking a, like a kind of a tricky line there, but I'm really glad that somebody kind of took the swing. It kind of makes me think now because I know that Ubisoft knows that people want an assassin's creed set in japan or china or india or whatever they did they explored china and india and they're like side scrolling mark of the ninja like spinoff series but uh you know i like i know that they hear the requests and i wonder if this kind of fear of of 
orientalizing these people is what's kind of keeping them from stepping in. And I'm on one hand, I'm kind of hoping that Sucker Punch did kind of at least kind of set a little bit of a bridge there for other teams to explore. But at the same time, like I don't want to I don't want it to just be like a completely open door where people can just like, okay, now that the now that the barn doors open, we can do it without doing our homework, without doing right. our, you know, due yeah. diligence to be respectful to the culture. So it is kind of tricky, but um like I'm really glad that uh that they seem to have sign off from a lot of Japanese publications. And of course, even if there was a consensus of all the publications in Japan, that doesn't even get close to speaking for every Japanese citizen or, right. or their yeah. feelings. And so that's, you know, that's a little Absolutely. tokenizing in and of itself as a defense. But uh, but it seems like they've done a a good job of kind of evoking the poetic, larger-than-life, fantastical image of Japan in a way that the Japanese players have been more or less happy with so far. I think for me, that's that's a big part of why it was successful is because it it avoids kind of it doesn't completely negate romanticizing the the era and the culture because you still have things like going out into the middle of a field and sitting on a rock composing haiku while the beauty of nature swirls around right. you. Yeah. You know, I mean, you yeah. still have those moments, right? That, that probably would fall under. And I mean, I, I think that they work really well. And, but maybe that's just because, you know, I'm, I am a, a person who is part of Western culture and, you know, can't, I'm not going to completely get away from that. But I, I, I think that those moments are pulled back enough and are not, are not sprayed all over the game. Like it, it's not, Hey, this is um, an ideal and perfect representation of exactly what, what Japanese culture was like. And, Oh, isn't this great? We should all strive to be like this. You know, you are also shown the drawbacks to it and the, you know, some of the, the weaknesses that, that could permeate just some of the things that that happen in the game and and i think that 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 particular balance for me the the balance between you know kind of the the desirable elements of this culture as well as the things that maybe they would prefer to not i mean i'm not gonna say like the ugly parts of it although there are some of those but the realism i think is is what kind of got to it for me even the parts that are fictionalized which is a lot obviously the parts that are fictionalized are not fictionalized in such a way as to mean it is like the most positive thing. You know, we are not seeing like the best place in the world. It's it's a beautiful place and it, you know, it has a lot going for it. But also there are people living here, not just, you know, stereotypes and and uh, and, you know, right, the yeah. samurai that yeah. you would see in a history book uh, that, that right. was created by people who have an interest in making sure that it all looks as pure as possible. I think, um, and that'll be interesting when we talk about the adversaries in the Ooh. game, which we'll, we'll be getting to pretty soon. Yeah, and and what and how the depiction of the Mongols might um, might kind of border on that problematic stuff. But I think to to both of your points and and to Sucker Punch's credit, like this is something where it was a huge swing, and and if you missed, you were going to miss big. You know, you weren't going to miss. You weren't going to just like slightly get off the mark. Like it, it, you either were going to kind. At least in my opinion, they they either had to nail it. 
or they were going to look pretty foolish. And I think for the majority of that, as you guys said, I think you're right. Like um, it does focus on the on the realism. It's not always looking at this. This it does romanticize certain aspects, but it's also not not being so fictional over the top um, with its depictions that it can just it it, it breathes that sense of realism that um, that you need to take it seriously to respect it. I think mm-hmm. moving into kind of talking about those characters in the scenario, uh, uh, we talked about the invasion of Tsushima Island. Um, so players assume the role of Jin Sakai, Lord Sakai, the uh, remain, remaining member of the Sakai clan and a as our our wonderful uh, um, kind of purveyor of the show notes, uh, Rich Davison said a mid tier samurai. <laughs> so he's like, you know, if you're doing samurai, you know, the tier ranks like for Smash characters he'd be probably a b <laughs> character somewhere in there so jin's <laughs> yeah exactly yeah i blame rich for that um so jin's adversary or the main antagonist or at least the one that is presented to you as your main antagonist at the beginning of the game we'll talk about how that evolves is Koten khan he's an intelligent mongolian warlord whose war technology and strategies dominate the battle and he is aided by a ronin ryuzo uh, to undermine the rebellion and force jin to evolve his traditional combat techniques and this is where i think we should kind of talk about the mongols um it's a very very striking scene where koten khan first comes um to uh to sushima um he uh it, it's it's very I, I melodramatic might not be the word i think they were kind of going for melodrama but it shows the old samurai guard going down to have an honorable battle with Koten Khan, like kind of settled the conflict. Koten Khan, who was educated in the ways of Japanese samurai and their and their nobility and their and their kind of sense of honor on the battlefield, basically just straight up slaughters it and then proceeds to slaughter most of the samurai forces. Jin and his uh, kind of uh, paternal um, lord, Lord Shimura, uh, would describe as a very dishonorable fashion. And this is kind of the launching point for basically saying that the way that the Mongols conduct themselves in battle and the way that they conduct their invasion is barbaric. It's it's not it's not the way that that honorable combat, honorable f- battle should be fought. And so I guess the question becomes like when it comes to the Mongols, did they were they were they othering the Mongols? Um, like does does Ghost of Tsushima avoid using nationalist tropes to prevent othering the Mongols? What so, do you guys think? I, I have some thoughts on this. It definitely starts out trying to make you think that the Mongols are this barbaric invading force and that they are 100% the bad guys, that they, you know, oh, well, they, they are just brutes who have no finesse and have no, you know, they have just... It's terrible. You know, they, they don't know how civilized people are, are supposed to conduct war. Right. Yes. The most interesting thing, I think, about the direction that the story takes is that you've, through your interactions with both Jin and specifically with Koden Khan, the uh, kind of intercut uh, scenes that you get with him, um, because you don't really interact with him directly, except for the very beginning and the very end of the game. Um, you, you kind of have these um, asides uh, where you see most often, I think it's him uh, interacting with uh, with Shimura. The interesting thing about this for me is that through these interactions, you start to see that it's not that he and the Mongols 
are creating this situation and are acting and uh, and are conducting their their battle tactics the way that they are because they're just too stupid to know any better. It's because they are in fact very intelligent, especially Khan, yeah. Khotun Khan. It's because he knows exactly where the weaknesses of the samurai are. That weakness is that they are so rigid that they cannot bend or they will break. Like mm-hmm. they just they they know one way to do things. They are committed to this one way of doing things because that's always how they've done them, and because that's just that's just how it is. Because he knows this, he 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 um, has some lines about how he's you know studied their culture. He has learned their language. You know he has he. He has really educated himself on how everything is set up and how uh, how everything functions. And because of this, he knows that, you know, all he has to do is kind of approach them from a side angle, as it were, Mm -hmm. do something that does not agree with their very rigid idea of how battle and how um, how everything is supposed to happen. And they just don't know what to do. They 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 can only keep doing what they've been doing this entire time, which is not sufficient, as Jin finds out. Um, it, it's just not sufficient to protect their people and to protect their land. Yeah, it's it's one of those things I, I've been thinking about it a lot leading up to this recording. And and I think, uh, well, Leah, you said was particularly apt because they like they're not they they're brutal for sure but i don't think barbaric is the quite word to describe they're they're very efficient mm. and that and that and cruel and brutal but not inferior like that's and that's i think that's a a, a unique distinction but i don't think that's also made in, entirely aware to the player and i think a lot of that comes from the evolution of jin as a character well, let's we'll we'll just get into to, to him right now. Um, Jin Sakai, who is a uh, Lord Sakai, he is the the protagonist in the game. Um, we have a bunch of correspondence relating to uh, Lord Sakai. Uh, Quiet Paul on the forum said, "I believe that Jin's unyielding, emotionless character is an intentional choice by the developers, as samurai are taught to live their lives logically and rationally and without emotion, as emotion leads to the dark side of the Force or something. <laughs> uh, however, it does make that decision a little questionable when Jin goes ahead and ignores that." part of his training by dishonoring himself through his actions and yet still no hint of emotion coming from Jin. am i just trying to excuse dull acting and then also uh tolkien taters on the forum said the constant movement of everything grass trees rain etc in the world was definitely inspired by kurosawa films i just wish i could say the same about the writing the characters were incredibly self-serious with little attempt at levity and the main conflict with Jin and his uncle didn't feel particularly interesting kurosawa's films are full of interesting people the most memorable character from the seven samurai uh, kukichio is comic relief half the time I didn't feel much for Jin or for a supporting cast, which was a shame because Khan and Tsushima were incredible. I wish I was playing a more interesting character like a certain wandering Ronin with no name. So <laughs> it was kind of going around after this game came out that Ghost of Tsushima was beautiful and the story was interesting, but Jin Sakai was a pretty boring dude. <laughs> so uh, what's, what are your thoughts on, on our, our good Lord Sakai? I'm kind of okay with that, honestly. Yeah. This is a very bratty complaint to make because like all it does is just reflect back like the high quality of everything else, but like I'm kind of I'm kind of tired of all video game characters sounding like professional voice actors, which I mean, I don't know who else they're going to get to come in and voice these characters, but like the <laughs> yeah. the fact that like random people walking down the street in video games are giving like Hollywood quality performances, it's just like is this person on their way to go to a voice acting job? Like, I don't know. It just, it feels kind of discordant. And so having somebody here who's not like 
Nathan Drake cracking wise all the time and not like a not like this big kind of you know larger than life like celebrity feeling individual like just kind of felt like a normal kind of boring dude was actually really yeah. refreshing yeah I, I didn't feel like the story was central to the experience anyways I felt like the story was mostly kind of in obligatory way to get you to engage with just being in the map without feeling like you're wasting your time you know to give you breadcrumbs forward so you can you can have the actual adventure of being on horseback and cresting a hill and seeing what's on the other side you know and and Jin yep. I think fits really well into that game which is the quiet wanderer I, I guess they needed a story because games need stories but they cast Jin to represent the the countryside wandering and not because he's the best uh lead for the you know family soap opera that is going on in the main storyline um which is which is fine that felt secondary to me anyways i agree i sort of agree um i i i kind of um i kind of saw jin in this as kind of your classic we are going to draw the player in by giving them a blank slate that mm -hmm. they can project themselves onto and still be a samurai. So, I mean, that that's kind of how things worked for me with, with Jin. I don't think that I necessarily agree about the story being secondary. Um, I, I think that with a, I think that with a uh, blank slate, it allows the, the other aspects of the story to kind of come out and shine more, particularly the side characters, which we're going to, we're going to mm -hmm. talk about shortly here. I, I think that he, he, Definitely is. I, I will say that a lot of the um, a lot of my favorite parts of of just the kind of minute to minute gameplay of this were, you know, riding the horse through a field of flowers or whatever and just, you know, kind of being in that in that space. Yeah. So I definitely agree about that. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that the the story the story exists almost in spite of Jin. And you could probably make the argument that it makes more sense for him to be thrown into this because i mean he wasn't he wasn't trying to be the ghost he you know he wasn't trying to be the only one who survived from you know this mm -hmm. group so i it, you could i could look at it that way i think and 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 be satisfied with that um mm -hmm. but yeah i i think for me it it was mostly the allowing people to project themselves like, you know, a Commander Shepard or a, you know, you, you know, it's, it is a character that is written, but it's also, it's also somebody who has a lot of room to allow them to be kind of what you want them to be almost. One of the things about Jin that we, we might touch on later. And so, you know, let me know if I'm cutting ahead in line here, but this decision that you have to play either kind of stealthfully or to play mm -hmm. honorably. Um, you know, walk into camp, announce your intention and face everyone head on versus <laughs> sneaking around and backstabbing them until there's only three or four left. And then you can kind of just take the rest of them into fight now that the majority of the camp is is uh, is lying in a bush somewhere. But um, it, the the story will kind of reflect back on that. And one of the major complaints that I heard early on after this game's release was this feeling that the game is punishing you for playing the way that you want to play. If you like to be mm -hmm. a stealthy player, then the game very explicitly says 
that's a dishonorable thing. We don't do that in this family. <laughs> what are you doing? Well, but you, you get that anyway, though. That's one of my problems yeah, with that. That's, that's is true. That, yeah. I mean, you yeah. you can because I'm like I said before, I'm terrible at stealth games. Uh, and, you know, there are some places in this where you have to stealth because it's an instant fail state if you don't. Not too many, thankfully, but uh, there are a few. Yeah, I, I, I would have liked to see it lean a little bit further in that direction. Just because, I mean, I most of the time I did just go into the camp and say, hey, come come at me, bro. And, yep. you know, just go in that direction. And I still <laughs> got the disapproval of my uncle the second I had to you know, yeah. throw a dart or whatever. <laughs> yeah, we're going to we're going to get to that. But I'm thinking specifically of my my play style. It was like he's talking about honor and talking about being honor. And then what I do is I would just basically aggro the enemies from afar with headshots from my arrows. <laughs> I would unlock bullet time and just mercy shoot everyone in the head as they're running towards me and then eventually fight them <laughs> except for when i had to like save a captive or something where like i was required to get in close like i fought like a coward and i, I loved it um, <laughs> but i did fight I, I was certainly not honorable and um yeah the game so that that theme of fighting with honor and fighting with like you know uh, being less barbaric in giant air quotes than the Mongols um, really evolves through the story with your relationship with Lord Shimura. Um, So Jin, at the beginning of the game, there's the battle on the beach that gets referred to a lot throughout the game where um, where the Mongol invading force slaughters almost all of the known samurai, uh, basically just down to Jin, Lord Shimura and a few others that you meet along the way. So it's, it's a really I think it's an interesting start to the game because you're faced with your antagonist and then you get the opportunity to literally face the main antagonist and the dude literally just knocks you off a bridge and basically just says, hey, you know, come at me when you've developed your skills a little bit more. And then he just kind of heads north. And the story of Ghost of Tsushima is you're trying to get Lord Shimura out of captivity from who's kind of your mentor father figure. And we'll talk about that a little bit. Who's in captivity with the Mongols. Get him out. And in the service of that, you just find yourself going north through the island through the Isle of Tsushima. And on your way, it's all the kind of side characters you meet that kind of flesh out that world and that story. And one of the main things, and, and you already mentioned it, well, you both mentioned it, about the fighting with honor or not, all of that comes from a relationship with Lord Shimura, who's a kind of an older, noble samurai. He became, uh, essentially became your adopted father after your father was killed in battle. And one of the main story plot lines is that he's, Lord Shimura is going to petition the shogunate in order to become your actual legal adoptive father so you could be the next Lord Shimura after his passing. Basically, throughout the game, Lord Shimura goes from, come be my son, you know, here, sign the paperwork, we're going to send it to the government, and you're going to be my, you know, legal adopted son, to you're dishonoring everything about the samurai, and we basically are now mortal enemies. So the question I have for you guys is that this uh, this relationship develops. I see that like that pushes Jin towards that side of becoming the ghost. I felt that even though I had done some dishonorable things, it wasn't really until I was able to, I guess, clear the second part of the island. The island's kind of broken up into three regions. And there's that very important scene where you basically sneak into a Mongol camp poison all of them Mm -hmm. as they're sleeping and that is the that's kind of the breaking point for lord shimura and jin sakai where jin kind of says hey i've got to do 
this however I have to in order to achieve this goal. And Lord Shimura would rather face death while trotting across the bridge to essentially just get slaughtered because at least that's the honorable way to do it. And in my opinion, like for a game that was telling me along the line, hey, you have the choice to play this way or that way. Even if you had gone into every encounter as a standoff, never shot anybody, never sneak killed anybody except in the tutorial missions where you have to you still would have gotten to that conclusion and you would have become the ghosts. So is that is that a is that good game design that it forces your hand that it, it leads you down that path? Is it is it subversive or is it kind of a betrayal to the player the way you've been playing all along? I don't mind that, you know, especially in wartime settings. Sometimes the reputation that you get is kind of out of your hands. Sometimes, you know, these are extraordinary circumstances. You're you're, you're really choosing between you know, maintaining your honor and saving your entire, you know, family and people that rely upon you. And, you know, story canonically, he chooses to go into the camp and poison the people. Like, I'm not, I'm not resistant to this kind of choice being taken out of the player's hands and, um, you know, living with the consequences there. I think it would have been a different game if we had been able to kind of go about it in a different way. Uh, And, I, I kind of mentioned before that I, I would have liked to see them lean into it a little bit more, but for this specific plot point, I I don't know that it would have really worked any other way because this is after. So um, you are you're kind of presented at, at the beginning of the game, or or at least this is how I took it. It almost seems like freeing Lord Shimura is kind of your ultimate goal. Like that's you know mm-hmm. that's what you're leading up to, but that's only like not even halfway through the game when you yeah. free him and you free him by sneaking into his his prison like it, it you don't even free him in a air quotes honorable way right. yeah. so but i mean he kind of hand waves that a little bit like he's not real pleased with you because up until this point uh Coton Khan has been telling him oh hey your your nephew he's out there you know he's He's doing some some dirty business. He's, you know, you and, you know, Shimura is is already kind of upset. But then you free him and he's like, okay, well, you know, you freed me. So now we can go back to how things should be uh, because I'm here now. And um, Uncle Uncle Shimura is going to take care of it. (laughs) But but, you know, it I think that it's after that, if if Jin had gone back and kind of renounced his his relationship with with Yuna uh, and, you know, kind of gone back to a a more traditional way of fighting like his uncle wanted him to, I think it would have been, it would not have been the same game. um, Right. If you had had the option to do that, because part of, part of the whole thing that happens is Jin taking all of these lessons that he has learned and all of these kind of influences that he is, that he has taken in via mostly via these side characters that get him to where he is towards the end of the game, which, you know, is, is adapting so that he doesn't die. You know, it, it is, it is quite yeah. literally an adapt or die situation. And Shimura has made his choice. He's ready to die. He's not going to adapt. And Jin sees it differently. And I, yeah, yeah I, I think if you did have the choice to, you know, just charge in like Shimura wanted you to, probably die doing so that mm-hmm. yeah I, I i don't i don't think that that the point that they were trying to make or or the, at least that i perceive that they were trying to to make uh would really have come across yeah i i completely agree and i and i think that while there is some definite 
uh, definite like problems with maintaining the narrative while also kind of going against what the game has been telling you. It's like, you know, your your uncle says do everything honorably. And then the minute that you rescue Yuna, who's a character we'll talk about in a minute, and she takes you, she's like, oh, no, we can't fight them one on one. So let's do this stealth mission. And you're like, no, I want to just kill these guys. And the game will literally fail state you mm-hmm. if you just go out and try to. See it. But the, it, the only way you can proceed through that mission is to sneak through the bushes and slaughter these Mongols from behind, from above, you know, and it's teaching you how to play the game in that way. But it does it does take the narrative out of your hands. And I don't see that as a negative. I do see it as maybe pigeonholing some people into feeling they are going to be rewarded or not rewarded for playing a certain way. But this game, mm-hmm. it's kind of not about that. And but I don't know. It doesn't convey that necessarily incredibly well like maybe they're thinking that if they play honorable they get a you know a cool golden sword at the end you know or something you yeah. know like that um but the game just it kind of uses that narrative to kind of maybe try to funnel you in one direction but i think it's kind of neat how while it's trying to funnel you in that direction the the way of the ghost if for lack of a better term does provide you some unique advantage some unique advantages so if you if you start like sliding down that slope it's a slippery slope mm-hmm. and you're like oh now all of a sudden i've got bullet time on my arrows and these guys can i can get back into a hidden state and i can chain assassinate these three guys it it does it does lend you some different opportunities in gameplay so so yeah i don't know it's it's one of those things that i'm i guess personal preference but i didn't personally find anything you know unnerving about it but let me let me tell you how good it feels to just go up and call out your your dudes and then just execute a perfect standoff where you just oh, slice yes. a bunch of dudes in half. That's real nice. I liked that. The standoff is such a good solution for oh, it's so great. Good. like you know, the thing about like stealth is that like you do the stealth at the beginning of the of the encounter, you thin out the horde and then you fight whatever's left. Like that's the pattern that we've been kind of trained to expect in the recent Assassin's Creed, Shadow of Mordor, Uncharted 4, like that is how games work these days, like in general. And the fact that this game, even though it doesn't practically reward or like really kind of decrease any kind of traditional, you know, Knights of the Old Republic morality bar, like you might expect coming into something like this, it, it does allow you to play in both ways and it provides you know, a standoff, an upgradable standoff mechanic at the beginning, which is an appropriate action that replaces the stealth kind of one for one. Mm-hmm. And so you're not necessarily taking the, like, it's a bit more difficult, but it's more of like a different skill set that it's calling upon rather than being kind of quantitatively more difficult than the other path. Like, you, yeah, you get, yeah. if you're good enough at that little standoff minigame, then you get you know, five free kills at the beginning of every fight. And that thins the horde, you know, the same way that it would if you were sneaking around. I I love that way too, that as you, as you evolve your character and get, get Jin a little bit more powered up, you'll, you'll get those five kills and then you'll see those three guys who are on their backs now sliding away because they're terrified of you. Mm -hmm. They're just trying to run out of the, like, so you can take out more than just like that initial five, just based on, based on that tactic too. It, It does offer some, some unique way to, ways to handle those situations. Um, and we'll talk about the combat a little bit more. We go in with stances and things like that. But we, we've talked a lot about Lord Shimura and Jin and their relationship. But the relationship with a lot of the other side characters does uh, is integral, I think, in telling the story of the game and also making yourself familiar with the island and, and kind of the progression of things. So I'm just going to kind of list some of these side characters. We're going to talk about a, a few of them. One that I, I have a particular fondness for and kind of breaks my heart, to be honest, is Lady Masako Adachi. 
kind of a a a a, a trained Japanese noblewoman. She was the wife of a samurai. Basically, her entire family was slaughtered from within. Uh, in one of the heaviest moments of the game for me personally is when you first come across Lady Moscow and and she she's basically just got done like hand burying the bodies of her like children and grandchildren. It is like it is one of those moments where you're kind of just getting into the game and you're wondering how serious is this game going to take things. And you, you encounter her and I was just like, oh, my God. But then on top of that, I was like. Well, I'm going to find whoever's wronged her and brutally murder them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I wanted I wanted to see that storyline play out. And it it kind of painted her as this there was a strength and resolve, but also the pure fury of revenge kind of painted on her face. It was um I really really enjoyed playing through her entire story arc. Yeah, I mean, she's she's a mother and a grandmother and she has just seen most of her family slaughtered yeah as you said i mean there there is a side mission that you do with her where you go to find her sons and just you find them dead on the beach and yeah. you know you have to take them down and and help her bury them and yeah. it just some of the stories that she tells are just th- th- like you said they're they're just kind of heart heart wrenching and yeah. i getting to to see uh, her storylines, I think, were, was probably also my my favorite because you find out a lot about her backstory, um, mm. and and it, you know, it just it it doesn't it doesn't seem like something that you would normally get out of a female character. Um, you know, she yeah, might sure. she someone who is actually physically strong and you know is devoted to battle in the way that she is yeah I, I don't know if it's appropriate for the time period i don't really have a whole lot of knowledge about uh female samurai um but yeah she's she's a badass and i i, yeah. I really i i really liked her that's that's one of the things i i was thinking about when when i was writing notes about her is that she is she is not just competent but confident mm-hmm. and she makes it quite clear that she does not need you like yeah. you, she like you'll come across her sometimes and she'll just be like in battle in a field you know what i mean like just fighting off a few uh either mongolian or some of the straw hat ronins and and then like you'll show up and you'll help her out and she and like she'll do that kind of like like i would have been fine jen you know what i mean like mm-hmm. yeah like I, I get it but yeah all right now go help me find my 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 sister and um yeah, I, I was really, I'm really emotionally attached to her. Um, I, we've already mentioned uh, Yuna um, before. She's kind of, she's a painted as a as a thief by trade, kind of. But her her story arc evolves very f- much farther than that. But but basically, she is the person that rescues Lord Sakai from the beach and nurses him back to health. And so Lord Sakai feels kind of duty bound to help her and protect her. And um, she's initially your interaction with her is is finding her brother, Taka, who's a blacksmith who's gone missing. And you kind of see the evolution of, of their relationship. And, and she kind of teaches you the way of the ghosts, the the stealth missions, the ones we were talking about before. She kind of takes you by the hand and then leads you through there. Yuna and her brother Taka have a, have a good relationship. There's a, a particularly heart wrenching moment in the middle of the game um, involving Taka and Koten Khan, and it's one of the more emotional story beats uh, where uh, Taka um, and and Jin have been kidnapped and and kind of tied to posts by the Khan, and the, and the Khan kind of mercilessly slaughters Taka. 
I believe cuts his head off if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and, uh, and, and it kind of fuels Jin's rage a little bit more and definitely fuels Yuna's rage. Something that I really enjoyed about the Yuna and Taka relationship is Yuna is clearly the, the strong one in this, in this, uh, sibling pair. Like Taka is very talented and, you know, is, is no slouch, you know, he can fight and he, he has, uh, he has his blacksmith capabilities, but he's not really one to be in a fight. Like if, yeah. if something like that were to happen, it would be Yuna who was protecting him, uh, which is kind of what happens for a, a large portion of the game. And part of the reason that Taka is even there when he is killed is because he is pushing so hard to have both Jin and his sister see him as, you know, useful and as competent and, yeah. as you know, as, as standing out as much as they do. That really just sucks because, you know, he 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 does his best and, you know, he stands up for what he believes in and he stands up for Jin and he just gets killed for it. And it's yeah. it's real rough. Um, and yeah, I, I that was that was harsh. Um, I will say that uh, regarding regarding, Yuna though, um, what I think one of my favorite uh, scenes is actually. It's like right before one of the uh, one of the attacks on on the con where um, Jin and Yuna are kind of up in a tower just getting super drunk and, yep, and like yeah. talking to each other. I, I just I don't know. I guess I, maybe I'm just a sucker for scenes in which two characters get drunk and hang out. But yeah, <laughs> I, just, I just really I thought that was nice because, you know, it's we, we've we've talked some about how Jin is kind of can be kind of a bland character. And I, I, I thought that was nice, but it's not a situation where it's like, oh, this is clearly the love interest. And, you know, they they, you know, they're going to romantically end up together at the end of this game. And that's that's what this whole thing is about. It, a certain reading, you could probably see something there, but that's not what this is about. Like, it's about yeah. her being a comrade and being, you know, a key part of this whole thing, even though she doesn't especially want to be. It's especially not at the beginning. You know, she just wants to get her brother and get out, but kind of becomes yeah. entangled in it. And, uh, and yeah, I think it's I think she ends up being really important. Any particular attachment to uh, Yuna and Taka, Ryan? I, I think more broadly, one of the things that I find really interesting about this game is every relationship that you have with other characters has this kind of underlying current of um, class conflict involved as well. And oh, yeah, not sure. on the side of class conflict, conflict that you are used to taking in video games, where you know it's always like, you know, the little guy that is standing up against the powers that be, you know, the, you have yeah. this kind of class solidarity and it's oftentimes about kind of rallying people within kind of the lower social classes together to, you know, pool their might and to stand up against something, this greater injustice that is controlling the rest of society. You know, it's how like a traditional mm. story is structured these days. Whereas in this one, you are the Lord of the land. <laughs> And uh, you are certainly like making yourself useful as a warrior and protecting the people, but the people that you meet are happy to see you in that you drove off the robbers that had swords with your sword, but they're also <laughs> really wary of you and really kind of untrusting of you as nobility. Yeah. And yep. the fact yeah. that like, there's this, this sense that even if you drive off the invaders, we're still, we still don't own the land. We're still living underneath a landlord. Like we still aren't free, you know? And so 
there's this point at which like they know like when you look in their eye like you can kind of see that when this enemy is gone you become the enemy again this kind of de facto Mm -hmm. enemy because there's so much attention paid throughout the game in a way that i'm not used to seeing in in a lot of games and even those that are set during war a lot of attention paid to the scarcity of resources um not only food which comes up a lot but also like building resources and stuff like that like people are pretty like openly expressing that like we don't know how we're going to get through the next few months and you know it drives people to react in different ways like the uh you know it's kind of the basis for the straw hat storyline and yep. a lot of the villages yeah. that you go to as well and you know you're a lot of that is due to the war and due to the blockade of course but also like these people you can kind of tell that they're not living their best life in general and you come from a palace and so there's obviously something that's not right about you know this major income inequality and so there's you know you are a prince and you are treated like somebody who is immediately useful but in the long term serves a very tenuous and uh very contentious tension-filled role um yeah. in relationship to everyone else that you meet so this next character um everybody's favorite angry uncle uh sadanobu <laughs> ishikawa uh, master archer i really did like playing through his storyline uh not only because i i think the idea of kind of a defecting student from his archery school was an interesting side story but also this guy was just kind of a jerk and i just wanted to like I found myself like while his 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 student who had gone rogue was clearly doing some bad things like I didn't necessarily disagree with her reasoning because he was kind of he's not exactly a great guy. No, Um, no. Yeah, I I I I think you're right. It it is kind of because I mean you are you are presented at, at the beginning with this. Well, I don't know what happened. I mean, she just she's just crazy. She I took her in and look what happened. You know, she's she's uh, everything. This is what happens and, when yep. I share my gift with yep, us with the exactly. world, and, and now it's turning against me. Yeah, and and then when you actually kind of start getting into the the later parts of of the storyline and when you you speak with her and she says some cryptic stuff about oh he'll do this to you too you know and and yep. you know talk to him about it and it, yeah it just it is not what you might expect uh and i think that makes it more interesting and uh, just a couple more here of note um these are kind of uh direct tales there's a the the name for the side quest in the game are tales of sushima and every character we're talking about here uh save for the last one has kind of their own branching quest path with seven or eight or sometimes nine uh, little little side stories you get to see uh one is uh kenji the sake brewer kenji's kind of a uh, I would call him shady merchant character. I think seems fair. I think he he's about as close to comic relief as you get in this game. Yes, um, absolutely. Which yeah. I, he's okay. Like I did not yeah. love Kenji's storylines because he seemed to be a bit like you, you get you get kind of the oh well he he sees he sees a a, a wacky scheme he can get into and he's gonna do it yeah. even though he might get killed by Mongols. Like yeah, right, it, yeah. But he. he was um, one of, he- <laughs> <laughs> and, you, and then you have to go bail him out. Like it's just, yeah. Eh, I I don't know. I it it was fine. It, it for what he was, it his storylines were executed fine. I guess I just I didn't love that part of it. We had Norio, who was the warrior monk. Um, he 
he he doesn't really take uh, prominence in the story until about halfway through in the when you're in the second phase of the island. His um his temple and his kind of his his faith has kind of been shaken. Um, I I didn't feel a real attachment to the storyline. The way it ends is is particularly interesting. He kind of. He kind of flips out and like sets a bunch of stuff on fire. Can't and, say I blame and, him. Uh-huh. No, me either. No, no, no. Um, when he finds out what they did to his brother, um, and how they've been kind of keeping him, uh, the Mongols had been kind of keeping him alive and torturing him for information and things. It was a uh, fairly brutal. Um, but uh, that that storyline uh, didn't particularly resonate with me. I think I had a little bit more of a positive reaction to him than uh, than you seem to. Uh, I I I did like because you you find him and you know you basically his story is that he was captured. His brother was kind of the the big hotshot of of the whole yeah. thing who sacrificed himself to you know to get his brother out of trouble and he was you know this big shot in in the monk community I guess I don't I don't really know but um mm. but yeah and and Norio is kind of struggling to live up to this legacy that he perceives that his brother has has kind of left behind when you find out at the very end that his brother is actually still alive and has, you know, just been horribly mistreated and, and mutilated and just all kinds of really awful things have happened there. He, you know, he, he really has to wrestle with what all of that means, whether he can be anything comparable to what his brother was, or if he even should be what his brother was. Yeah. I, I, I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, Oh, cool. Neat little little um, side, side mission there. He, uh, he definitely had that, um, you know the 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 struggle of like faith, right? You know the oh yeah. Uh, can I can I can I be this center of calming that I have been? And then especially when he finds out the fate of his brother, obviously that those walls break down. Um, but I think just just goes to show when we're talking about each of these characters that the game does a really good job, in my opinion, of fleshing them out in a way where I feel like I can talk about them like they're actual people. Mm-hmm. It goes beyond kind of Lord Sakai, and and a lot of my interest and thoughts on Jin don't necessarily come from things he does but come through these interactions with these side character mm-hmm. they become very important to fleshing out who lord sakai is what his role is why is he important and kind of what motivates his decision making and then the the last one um that i want to talk about is lady sanjo she is a frankly kick-ass lady pirate who runs a moogie cove and i would play an entire game based on her and her life <laughs> she uh she kind of runs kind of this den of uh, we'll say outcasts and thieves and pirates, and uh, she's integral in the story at one point. At uh, one point, to getting you the the uh, the assistance you need to take on Koten uh, Khan. Yeah, you you only really get like one or two side missions. Yeah. Um, that that directly deal with her, and that's kind of a shame because I I agree she's she's very cool, and I I kind of yeah. wish that that she had had like a, a a line similar to the ones that uh, that most of these other characters did. So that's kind of it for the side characters uh, that you meet. Um, and you can't even really call them side characters because they are so integral to the telling of the story. And and while we've talked a lot about that, we've talked a lot about Lord Sakai and, and Lord Shimmer, and we'll get to their final conflict at the at the end of this um, discussion. One of the things that we need to discuss and need to spend a healthy amount of time discussing are the visuals of this game. Um, so... I hadn't played Ghost of Tsushima, I want to say, for, let's say, six months uh, since I had last touched it, played some of the Legends mode in and out, in and out but um, uh, but hadn't really spent much time with it. And I was, I'm one of the lucky few that was able to get a PlayStation 5 at launch, just, just got a lucky in a queue, 
And so the last game I had completed before going back to Ghost of Tsushima was Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart. And I remember playing that game and I was just looking at every frame of like, wow, this just looks stunning. Look at everything that's going on. Look at all these visuals. Look at all these things. And then I got done with that game. I reinstalled Ghost of Tsushima and loaded that up and still had that moment of, oh, yeah, this might be the most beautiful game I've ever played. You know, like it's just it is so striking the choices that they make. Um, so uh, one of the one of the context for the visuals in this game is that everything seems to be affected by nature so far into the fact that your your guide, your your tr- quest tracker, your objective tracker is literally the wind. And when mm-hmm. you swipe on the touchpad, you can watch the wind kind of direct you to your objective. Um, it just there's something about this world and this is an overused term and I'm not using it lightly, but it it really does feel alive and, and, and there's no other way to describe it. It feels like it has a breath to it, like the nature and the environment in this game just is constantly moving and shifting. I agree. I think this is probably my favorite game world that I've seen so far is like just pure aesthetics yeah. like. It feels like, you know, you're I'm used to going into game worlds that look incredible but are built to do one very specific thing. There are games that, you know, through all their kind of like smoke and mirrors are able to present like, you know, this is a linear level that is set at nighttime and so all of the reflections, all of, you know, think about like Hitman 3 and everything like that, like the levels look incredible. And they're only meant to be viewed from kind of a specific, specific lens, a specific angle. The fact that Ghost of Tsushima looks as magical as it does, and it has cycling weather, and it has a day-night cycle, and it has brilliant colors in the sunset and sunrise, and it has all these different particle effects that go in and out throughout the day, and you can even kind of toy with those a little bit in the photo mode, and it all looks every single time I emerge onto like a new Vista, I'm like, okay, so I happen to get here at the exact right time to witness this at the point at which the artist intended me to see it. And then I come back there later. I'm like, oh no, actually this is better than it was before. Like everything (laughs) feels intentional in a way that's antithetical to the way that the world is built. Like I have no idea how they did it, but, and, and the fact that like it doesn't play its entire hand up front either. And you're still, seeing new things and discovering new like that the first island that you spend like the first third of the game on or the first half of the game maybe you go through you you see brilliant cliff sides and fields of long grass that kind of sway in the wind and uh wheat fields that are you know it's kind of like that opening of Sekiro and you have the uh the forests and the bamboo forests and all these um locales that that feel magical and larger than life and then you see that there's still you know two-thirds of the map that you haven't unlocked yet and you kind of expect okay i've gotten the visual visual splendor in it's going to be kind of more the same as i go up north and it's really not like you get to that middle the middle section of the map that that second continent that you unlock and you start discovering like swamp lands and stuff like that yeah and like man even the swamps look incredible like I could have an entire game that is set in just, you know, these swamps with the fog rising above them and with the kind of reflection of the light off of the mud on the surface and stuff like that. It's just like, it's, it's unreal. And I think it's because it is, everything feels exaggerated. Everything feels larger than life. Everything feels like you are 
like it is based on the aesthetic properties of a romantic painting rather than the actual way that because like totally into that they play their hand hard with the number of particle effects they put in the air feeling like way Mm. (laughs) way too much these people's hay fever must be like killing every (laughs) single one of them they know like they've completely overegged the pudding but it's their way of tilting their hand and saying like guys we know this isn't meant to be real we're just trying to paint the most beautiful picture imaginable (laughs) just have fun with it well i think maybe it was you ryan that said something about about how it kind of feels like a, a fable almost like a yeah. like a story that would have been told and i mean I, I think that the visual style fits with that like it it's the color for me i think is is, is really one of the big things like it's it's kind of a a, a trope you know that or just a, a stereotype that like these kinds of of big over uh overextended open world games you know are there's a lot of browns and grays and you know muted earth tones but everything is really bright you get these fields of flowers and you know just blue skies and and it just it's it's for me it was the color and it was the lighting and i'm not somebody who normally notices lighting that much unless it's super duper obvious but i just thought that the lighting in this game was beautiful i mean you get you get some shots like if you're out in a forest in the middle of the night you know the the moonlight just kind of lighting things up you and it i really enjoyed the uh the the visuals just because everything looked pretty like i i i don't think that a game necessarily has to be artistically beautiful in order to be fun or in order to be worth playing but in this case i i mean there were a lot of times that i would just kind of stop and you know take in the the scenery for a little bit before continuing on or you know just when i could have fast traveled between points i would take my horse instead just because it it just looked so nice to be riding through these fields and yeah. uh yeah, yeah i appreciated that the game this reminded me of more than anything else was Cameo Elements of Power on the Xbox 360. And that one was explicitly like, you are a fairy living in a world of fairies. Everything is meant to be magical. And so, you know, there's a there's a gloss to the grass and there's, you know, everything feels supernatural. And you got a sense of that here as as well. You know, everything felt like you were in a fairy world but it it didn't feel frivolous you know it didn't feel unmotivated it just felt like it felt heroic if anything yeah there's that moment early on i think it's one of the first main villages if you even call it that you come to it's got a like a multi-tiered shrine in the middle of it and it's just surrounded by silver maples which i have silver maples near where i live and the the leaves have all yellowed as they do in autumn and they're and they're just kind of falling like lazily and swirling around you and i just like breathtaking is is a melodramatic term that's overused but i mean it it didn't make me catch my breath right at that moment and just kind of stare and take it all in like it just is it's striking and i think what leah what you said about the color it's just like the the way that contrast and color and saturation is used is just so effective it just draws your eye in such a way that i just don't remember any other game being as successful at doing 
Designer Matt on the forum um, talked about the visual visuals. Excuse me. Um, as a fan of Kurosawa samurai films and beautiful open world games like Horizon Zero Dawn, this looked like it would tick a lot of boxes for me. I picked it up at launch and got engrossed very quickly. Who doesn't want to play as a samurai on a righteous revenge mission? And for a few weeks, was thoroughly enjoying playing every day. The design of the environments is just beautiful, and I love the stylized, oversaturated color palette that, for me, made everything feel like a gently moving painting. The minimal UI and touches like following the wind and animals to points of interest, Mm -hmm. instead of some big video game arrow, only immersed me further. Can we go back to that wind? You mentioned this kind of right up front at the beginning of the section, but like to me, the wind is Ghost of Tsushima's like big power play. Mm. The fact that all of these big open world games, you know, you got your Assassin's Creed, your Skyrim, your Grand Theft Auto, they all suffer from your eyes being glued to the map, the little mini map in the corner or yeah. the yep. uh, icon compass at the top of the screen. And it pulls you out of the world especially in Grand Theft Auto where you're driving at, you know, 60 miles an hour and you're trying to find a very specific route through kind of winding city streets to get to where you need to go. Like you'd need to watch the minimap more than you're actually looking at the game world. This is a game that found a really elegant solution to that. You know, the wind is blowing in the direction of where you want to go. And so you don't need your map for reference. Like you can always just kind of flick the touchpad and it will in world show you the direction that you need to be heading and you know sometimes it's sometimes you still need to figure out your own way around obstacles and mountains and stuff like that you know it's not a a clear one way journey but it's uh it puts your eyes back on the world in a way that like games have really really struggled with for a long time yeah the 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 lack of ui i think it, it really adds that you don't even really see a health bar until you're involved in combat and like you said it just draws your eyes back to the world um eterno on the forum said uh where the game shine for me is truly the graphics and the world building i think this is the most beautiful game i have ever played once again the lack of hud makes me really admire the scenery and the choice of colors is absolutely splendid the first few scenes where you ride your horse through the fields and Jin lets his hand run through the grass was a truly impactful moment for me in terms of how beautiful games are now with the visuals, they kind of promoted this before um, before the game came out in that state of play that, Ryan, you referenced earlier, was the Kurosawa mode. Um, I'm going to read Belmont's uh, O3's forum correspondence, and, and then we'll see if anybody uh, uh, tinkered with this. I had zero interest in this game when it was shown off and leading up to the game's release. However, when the game released, the world was in the middle of a pandemic, and me and my roommates were taking the time to play through my backlog. Newer AAA games, I was still working, so no need to save every penny, and of course, Animal Crossing. So with that said, I went and bought the game day one to let one of my non-working roommates play while I watched and decompressed from work. I ended up watching both my roommates platinum the game on my TV, LG CX OLED, and taking a peek myself when they weren't playing at the Kurosawa mode, which I loved. Since then, two of my coworkers have platinum my copy. I mentioned the make and model of my TV so I can comment how amazingly beautiful Kurosawa mode was on a TV with CRT level perfect blacks. While it made the game, play, game very difficult to play, which is no problem for me because I love a challenge, the game so clearly looked like a Kurosawa movie that I could spend hours upon hours working my way through the game fighting the shadows as I tried to read the enemies. I'm hoping that I can make that happen before the show is recorded so I can report back and see if it's possible to read everything through those perfect blacks. If not, I can say the game is satisfying to watch other people play, and I don't regret spending 60 bucks to watch other people play it. Um, that's very generous of you, Belmont. Um, either of you uh, touch the Kurosawa mode at all? 
So yes, um, I I messed with it for a little bit, um, and honestly, I didn't like it that much. I wish yeah. that I had. Um, I, yeah. I really wanted to because I think it's a really cool idea, and I, I I'm I'm glad that it sounds like some people really got a lot out of it. But for me. I mean, the color is such a huge part of, mm-hmm. of what I thought made that game so beautiful that it, it took a lot out of it for me to, to to do the Kurosawa mode and not have that available. I'm not especially attached to uh, the, the film style from which this this is uh, is drawn. Uh, so maybe if I were, then then that would have been a bigger thing for me. But yeah, I I was pretty excited to try it out. And then I just didn't love it like I thought I might. So yeah. Um, I liked it, but not enough to replace the colors. Um, I would kind of flick it on every once in a while, and it was cool to look at. And it did feel, it did give the game kind of a different, different tone. But uh, I always kind of felt that I was missing out on something by turning the colors off because you know the colors really, the colors would really sing. And I, I think if this game gets a sequel, they could stand to improve Kurosawa mode a little bit. Um, you know, mm-hmm. boost the whites and the blacks and kind of dial back the grays a little bit. But uh, I mean, for what it was, like it was better than I was expecting it to be because I've seen a lot of grayscale filters in games before, and oftentimes they feel really, really artificial. This one did a like a pretty good job. It has a little bit of room for improvement, but I think for a first effort, like it's uh, it was pretty pretty solid. So one of the things that was popular uh when the game came out and i know that our own jay taylor would be very remiss if we didn't mention the photo mode in uh ghost of tsushima marlu from the forum uh wrote shallow cookie cutter game design workmanlike combat and paper thin narrative are somehow elevated by extraordinary visual presentation we've seen every single element before but it's never looked so good while the kurosawa references are superficial and highlight how dull these characters are in comparison not sure i agree but well said um the stylized lush fields recall the hypnotic beauty of onibaba at least half of my time with the game was spent tweaking photos and admiring the stupendous atmosphere and lighting effects. For everything this game nicked from modern Assassin's Creed games, I wish it had taken the tourist mode. I'd have put another 50 hours in. While I didn't agree with some of the things about the characters in the correspondence post, I do agree with the photo mode. It's um, it's a little overwhelming um, at times. Um, I find that sometimes my my additive nature in photo modes, I'm actually, especially in this game, making things look worse than they did before with the way that the the game was just developed. But um, did did either of you spend much time with photo mode? Not really. I I, I took a few shots, um, but I I'm not. I'm not very good at at photo editing, so yeah, me I, either. It it wasn't. A, I don't think it was a situation of I was making things look worse, as just that I wasn't capturing what to me made it so so beautiful or memorable or whatever it was. I, I I did mostly it was I would get to somewhere and go, oh my god, this lighting looks great. I need to try and capture this, and then I would try and capture it, and I just wouldn't do a very good job. So yeah, the, I I. I have seen some uh, incredibly impressive uh, photos, mm-hmm. uh, including, as you say, some taken by RJ, um, who uh, is very into photo modes in general. And um, yeah, I, I, it's a really impressive feature that I wish I was better at using. I see Jay's stuff, and it always makes me look back at my own library of screenshots and notice how basic everything is. The most obvious shots of the uh, lovely landscapes. Not that I don't enjoy still looking at them, but uh, you know, I, I feel like I've got a long way to go before I'm able to uh, 
to really show them off in the same way that uh, a lot of these people do. <laughs> but I appreciate that the game uh, put a lot of attention into motion photos as well. I don't know how often they're taken as opposed to kind of the regular like still shots, but uh, you can have kind of like short looping videos like you can do on some cameras these days where, you know, it'll show kind of a three second loop of something in motion rather than just a still. And so you can catch some of those particles blowing through the air. You can change the wind speed and the particle types and everything like that. You get a lot of hands-on control to create these living scenes that you can share with everyone else. And again, I'm not sure of the method by which they're shared, whether they upload as like short YouTube clips or as like if they auto convert to GIFs when you're sharing them out. But uh, it's really, it's cool tech. And I'm glad that, you know, people are still making advances in photo modes like this. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely definitely was one of the highlights of the game. Uh, one, if you're playing it at launch, is that seeing things like the Twitter feeds of people that that are just so adept at using it can really mm-hmm. shows that the tool set they provided is is pretty deep and varied as long as you're good enough to use it, which I certainly am not. Although I did get a couple of good pictures of me just hacking some dude's arm off. So, I mean, I guess for me, you know what? Things could be worse. Toon Skatoon from the forum says, My one complaint about Ghost of Tsushima was that three quarters of the way through the game, my bloodlust was satiated. I don't think this is because I've evolved to the point where arterial spray or the ability to cleave through bone as easily as sky doesn't give me deep satisfaction, nor does this mean I didn't like the game's combat mechanics. The menu of moves Ghost of Tsushima pushes you to deploy in creative ways is lengthy and well-considered. My issue was that the combat in this game seemed like its central mechanic, and that bummed me out because I thought that for as excellent as the combat was, everything happening around it was even better. It's so the term deliberate has been used to describe a lot of combat in recent years and uh, check off check off your bingo card. Um, but of course, we're talking about the souls like games. And I think with the preview coverage for this game, it looked like maybe this combat was going to have some similar feel to that. And I think what they ended up with was a little bit more of a certainly a deliberate combat style, but a little bit lighter. It feels a little bit uh, more floaty. Mm-hmm. Um and it really does feel like you are slicing. You're not you're not hitting things as much as you're moving through them. How how do you guys wh- where do you stand on the on the combat system with uh, Ghost of Tsushima? It felt very mechanical to me to elaborate on what I kind of mean on that is that everything else feels so natural and so integrated natural it both in the sense of uh you know it feels right and also that it is integrated with kind of nature you know as as we've talked about previously but there is a right way when you get into combat to resolve said combat like you mm-hmm. have you need well you don't have to but if if you are doing it air quotes correctly, then you are in the correct stance for each type of enemy. Like if you ha- if you have a shield enemy, you need to be in this stance. If you have a spear enemy, you need to be in this stance. So it's it's almost like a combat puzzle in that way, which I'm not necessarily opposed to. It just I, I don't I don't know that it really fit for me with the rest of with kind of the rest of the game as a whole. I I I don't think that the combat was necessarily weak, but I think it was the weakest part of this game for me. I don't disagree with any of that. Um, I think it was, I think it fit with the type of game that they were building. And I was glad to have something that felt different from, you know, Breath of the Wild, especially. And not that I dislike Breath of the Wild, but I think if I were to play 
another game with that same combat style that is otherwise so similar like it would kind of blend together a little bit like i'm I'm glad that mm-hmm. they staked their claim on something that felt different you know this is more bushido blade than it is soul caliber like it's it's very slow like one hit does quite a bit of damage and taking a hit from an enemy can put you in a really bad place it's you know it made the uh, it made the stealth feel really useful and necessary um, it meant that you know standard enemies remained a threat farther into the game not all the way through the game but farther into the mm. game than usual um, everything just felt dangerous but um, it, you know like your life could be over in a moment and uh, I yeah. I like that that fits with the kind of wandering samurai vibe really well and the you know the fact that everything was very angular sudden um, also kind of fit with that uh, the ways that like samurai films kind of played off of uh, off of western films uh off of like westerns specifically of you know the the standoffs with basically you know two characters standing eye to eye watching each other seeing who's gonna reach for their gun first like you get that sense with enemies that you know the strikes are going to be swift and they're going to be sudden they're going to be costly and it's either you know you're trying to weigh up do i strike first or do i wait and deflect and then go in for a punishment you know it's a it feels good like that, but it didn't feel it didn't feel exceptional enough to where I'm missing the combat. I wouldn't go back just for a few fights like I would in Bloodborne or a fighting game or anything like that. Yeah, that's that's kind of exactly where I landed on it. The the stance stuff that Leah mentioned before, it does kind of eventually feel like you're just like, oh, here's a here's a big mm-hmm. brute. Switch to that stance, slam on triangle until his shield's down, then my, you know, cut his arms off. And then, you know, same thing. Oh, two shield guys are coming. So some of the upgrades do allow you to become more of that, you know, superhero fantasy to where you can parry attacks in any stance and 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 it does open up in that way. But I, I agree. I by the end of of my first playthrough, I was not like seeking out extra combat challenges. Um but that that doesn't in my personal experience, though, that is separate, though, from the duels. Now, there are I think it's like 31 of them throughout the game that you can end up going into. But where these are more challenging one on one samurai duels that you play, um, some of them are story based. Uh, one we'll talk about in a minute, the the, penel- uh, the excuse me, the, the final duel that you uh, go into. But uh, a lot of these, uh, your conflict with the Straw Hat Ronins will end in duels. In fact, there's a side tale where you're searching down four of them to duel. Um, I really loved the duel um, fights in this game. Uh, Some of them I found very frustrating. Some of them more resembled some boss fights, maybe from a, a Souls type game, although less punishing, I would say. Anytime I saw that there was a duel happening, I kind of like did that crack the knuckle, sit forward on the couch mm-hmm. and get ready to, to take these to, to take on your enemy. I I wish that some of the lengthier kind of clearing out camp combat were replaced with some more of these kind of one on one. That's when I really felt like a samurai, just two highly skilled swordsmen going at e- going at each other um, and, you know, kind of the best the best warrior wins. Yeah, I agree. I, I like those. Also, um, they were often visually kind of striking. Yeah, you know? like yeah absolutely. It, yep. Especially some of the side ones where like you would go and be fighting somebody in, you know, a, under a waterfall or in, you know, a a a 
leaf-lined clearing or, you know, out in the middle of a field of waving wheat or whatever. It 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 felt dramatic uh in, in a in a cinematic sense. Um and and I, I enjoyed that as well. It was a bit annoying that they kind of changed up your moveset a little bit. You didn't have access to all of your tools when you were in a duel, which is fine. You know, this is supposed to be kind of an honorable one-on-one match and my kind of standard way of doing things of like, oh, there's some distance between him and me now. Let me pull out my bow and arrow and try to shoot him away. Like that would have felt kind of wrong in those scenarios. But I did I did have a few like, I guess just kind of wasted moments and uh, button presses that didn't end up doing anything because I was expecting to have access to tools in my uh, tool belt that were just no longer there. And that was a bit frustrating, but whatever, you know, it's just momentary distractions. Aside from the combat, there's a lot, a lot of things to do in this game. Um, And that's kind of part of what, um, well, we have some forum correspondence from uh, designer Matt um, says uh, there was real satisfaction to gradually leveling up your character and particularly in learning new sword stances and improving your technique. Pulling off parries and gracefully dancing between enemies felt skillful and victories felt earned. I had a lot of fun with Ghost of Tsushima, but did grow fatigued after a few weeks of play. There was just so, so much to do and find on the map and a lot lot of repetition with tasks like finding fox shrines that my attention gave out before I got near the end of the story. I could have ignored the side's quests, I suppose, but I wanted an excuse to explore the lovely world, and that for me was much of the appeal. I found myself wishing for a smaller, more curated version of the game. Same stuff, just less of it. Maybe I'll fancy picking up my sword again sometime and we'll go back to pick up where I left off. A lot of correspondence that we received and a lot of talk about this game uh, at the time of release seemed to describe it as a quote-unquote older open world game more reminiscent of instead of a your assassin's creed's origins and odyssey maybe more like assassin's creed unity or assassin's creed syndicate and i I feel some of those criticisms are earned um i can say for my for my own sake i didn't platinum the game my first time through because i had spent 50 odd hours with it i looked at my completion list and i was like i really just didn't feel like chasing down another 13 fox you know, it just I like it was just one of those things like I but you can pet them. You sure can. <laughs> yeah. And I and I did. And if I would turn around and the fox is already gone, I would get sad and cry a little fox shaped tear out of my eye because I wanted to pet the fox. But yeah, I just for some reason uh, and I got to the end, too. I remember the last haiku. I, it's vivid memory. I'd beaten the game and I wanted to go track everything down. So I, I found a haiku spot and I literally was just moving my cursor to the closest one on the screen and just hitting X, hitting X. And I'm like, I'm not enjoying this. So I walked away from it. Um, I found that after some time of separation, after going back to Platinum over the last month or so, I enjoyed that stuff a lot more. But I think the reason I did is because I had that separation from it. Um, how how do you feel about the quote unquote old style of the open world? And did you did you find that fatigued you? So, yes, kind of. Um, I, I as I mentioned before, I'm very much a, a checklisty person uh, for these types of games. What I will say is that oftentimes in an Assassin's Creed or similar type of game, I I will often find a type of side mission that I just don't really care about or uh, am not interested in. And so I'll, you know, I'll leave those. Mm. I actually kind of liked all of the the side mission types in this, mm-hmm. particularly uh, the shrines, uh, which is probably, I, I want to say that that's probably the thing that you run into the least. So maybe that's mm-hmm. why, because they, they are longer usually and, and are kind of uh, platforming 
style puzzles. They're not especially difficult, and you know, it's, your your path is usually relatively clear. But I don't know. I just I, I enjoyed the the construction of those a, a lot. But I, I I kind of agree with the sentiment that maybe a slightly smaller uh, section with fewer of just the hey go compose a haiku or go sit in a hot spring and and look at Jin's butt for a little while like i yeah <laughs> i i mean you know it's i did not dislike any of this um but it there was a lot and i will say i mean the second time that i did it i did not do most of them hmm, yeah. i i cleared the map out hardcore the first time around <laughs> and then when i went back for a second try like if if things were like i did the the main like the tales of sushima like we like we talked about before i did those like if i ran across something on my way from point a to point b then it, if it were something that i wanted to do i would stop and do it but i didn't go to seek everything out which almost caused me physical pain because i'm very much a map completionist <laughs> but uh but i had done it once before so i didn't really need to do it again but it's a question mark leah it means you I don't know. know what's there you need to find out what's there oh, do, do tell me about it i i have a problem like I, it's it, i'm the same way I'm oh same boy way. uh but yeah that's and and as a result my game time the second time around was considerably less than my first time yeah. around uh, and I, I still got, you know, I still didn't have any issues, you know, because I mean, you do get upgrades and things from from these side stories and side missions that that can help you out quite a bit. I, I mean, I still didn't have any trouble even with not actually going through every single thing on the map. So, I, you know, it's it's something that I'm glad I experienced once, but I don't think that any subsequent playthroughs I do would be quite that thorough. I uh, I kind of disagree with the premise like i think this felt to me very very much like origins and odyssey assassin's creed wise mm. like it, there wasn't the kind of constant resource gap there was a bit of resource gathering but not to the degree that especially odyssey encouraged you to do yeah for sure wasn't anywhere near as much bloat as the recent assassin's creeds have uh, had in them but otherwise the experience felt very similar to me you know where you just have this kind of big world and it's more of kind of a comfort popcorn type of game rather than something yeah, that you're trying yeah. to mainline all in one sitting um and i think for this purpose like this is exactly exactly the kind of game that i as i get older i enjoy playing more and more of just a game where i enjoy being a part of the world and there are some like reasonably difficult but never to the point at which i'm ever going to lose like there are little challenges sprinkled throughout and um i can just kind of tick away at them one at a time and listen mm -hmm. to a podcast on the other screen and enjoy just the environment just being there so for me like this is kind of exactly what i was looking for and um hmm. yeah i yeah again like i didn't i didn't dislike any of the activities off the top of my head and um I just I was happy to have an excuse to be in the world and actually upon revisiting it uh, before the show I was a bit disappointed because I wanted to kind of hop back into the game and ride around and you know get in a few fights and see what I can see and gather some resources just whatever you know I wanted to go find some bandits robbing somebody on the roads but once you clear a part of the map like crime is pretty much taken care of like there's just 
<laughs> you solved yeah. you solved crime. Like, right. I was just riding it's around, and it's like there were no enemies anywhere. It's like this is kind of what I always asked for in video games, and I was you know I always complained when I would spend all that time in Assassin's Creed uh, Odyssey clearing out a camp and then come back there 20 minutes later and it's all full of enemies again. You know, I was like, I was frustrated by the lack of permanence. But uh, in this case where your progress is more permanent and you feel like you do actually have an effect on the world, uh, it means that you don't really have a lot to do unless you hit that new game plus button. <laughs> yep, <laughs> absolutely. So I, I think the only aside stuff we didn't talk about, there's these bamboo challenges where essentially are just hit the right buttons in a row and, and yippee, your resolve goes up. And uh, the hot springs, uh, Leah mentioned, where you get a, a look at Lord Sakai's posterior um, as he gets in to raise his maximum health. So Pecan Pie from the forum um, says, I love the quiet, reflective moments it Ghost of Tsushima provides. While the world is stunning and beautiful, the stories of the people in the game can be brutal and heartbreaking, with families being torn apart, sons and daughters killed, and communities destroyed. The game counters those narratives with peaceful, meditative moments at Hot Springs, writing haiku, and vistas at Shinto shrines. The haiku writing in particular was something that surprised me with how engaged I became with the activity. At first, I dismissed it as an obligatory nod to the Japanese art form, but as the game progressed, the more as the game progressed more, I relished slowing down and reflecting on the topic presented, either through the lens of Jin or through my own life. I would slowly pan through the presented scene, trying to find the words that best represented my feeling, taking deep breaths and absorbing the scenery while soothing theme played. Even when the combinations weren't great, it still sounded beautiful as Jin read it upon a completion. These moments contributed to my adoration of the tone and setting Sucker Punch created, resulting in a game world that was captivating to inhabit. Yeah, I agree with with most of that feedback. I did still get tired of it um, towards the end, but I think it was just that the haiku rewards were really underwhelming. Like if there was just a little bit better of a reward on the other side, like I felt like it's something I would be really excited to Absolutely. engage yep. with. I don't know, man. I love a nice new hat, and that's basically <laughs> what you got. Yeah, but pretty early Head in the bands. game, I found the hat that was like my favorite throughout the rest of the game, and so by that point, I was like, I just kind of want my hat. I really just liked matching my headbands to my uh, to my outfit. So, um, you know, I wore the big, just, like broken down straw hat. And I was like, this thing is really cool. I feel like a Silent Hill villain. All right. So uh, we talked a little bit about some of the sound. Um, I, I personally, I don't think there's too much to say about the soundtrack. Um, for, for me, I think it's more the sound design personally that I yeah. uh, was was impressed with. On the design of the sound, Bradley Meyer, who's the audio director, said one of our internal pillars for the game was that it should be a time machine that makes players feel like they're a samurai in 13th century Japan. We wanted the world to really feel like that. The natural beauty really needed to sing, whether that was the tranquility of birdsong on a clear day or the torrential threat of a looming storm. The wind, which plays a very strong role in the game as the main navigation tool, also needed to make the world breathe with its dynamism across weather states and biomes. And that's I, I agree with that, too. Um I, when thinking about this game and thinking about like songs, um, I know Ryan, you do, you've done a lot of work uh, with Kane and Rince in the past mm -hmm. when it comes to soundtrack and, and kind of like going over important video game soundtracks throughout the years and things that you've spoke to you. Did you, did anything about the soundtrack speak to you? Um, cause I, it left me kind of wanting a little bit more. I didn't fall in love with the ghost of Tsushima soundtrack, but I did find it very, I want to say interesting, enigmatic maybe because it felt like. Going into it, I was expecting something that felt very, very Japanese. You know, I was thinking back to like the Okami soundtrack where everything is okay, constructed yeah, for with sure. like traditional yeah. Japanese instruments. And even though it's done in a more kind of 
more kind of dense and modern style, it still felt really recognizably mythically Japanese. Um, whereas that's kind of what I was expecting in Ghost of Tsushima. And it had elements of that. And it brought in traditional Japanese instruments and had a few kind of tunes here and there that did evoke the Japanese feeling. But a lot of the story moments and combat moments and stuff were more kind of punctuated with um, full orchestras and sounds that felt very Western and very cinematic. In that sense, like it's kind of, you know, it fell to the background because that's what we're used to hearing in games. And it didn't Mm -hmm. really add anything in the same way that like I would have appreciated maybe something that felt a little bit more Japanese that felt like a very Western touch on, uh, on this otherwise very Japanese game. But then I was kind of won over again by it kind of doubling down on the Westernness by having a few songs in there that sounded like spaghetti Western soundtracks. You know, yeah, they had that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. They have those tunes that feel like they could be right out of, you know, the good, the bad and the ugly, you know, you get this, um, it, it evokes those images of the dusty stranger rolling into town and, you know, people not knowing or trusting each other. And, and it was just a very interesting reference point. I know that samurai films and Westerns have like a long intermixing history with influences going both ways. And so, you know, it's not a, uh, it's not a, like a hugely revelatory connection for them to draw, but the fact that they included those, like what felt like explicit references to the musical history of Western film, uh, Westerns in particular, it, it felt very intentional and it, it kind of softened my feelings towards the otherwise like very, very Western to mean European and American feeling soundtrack. So uh, this is the one thing I, I want to talk about before we move into kind of our wrap up here is the final decision. So uh, we t- I alluded to it before, but basically after you take down Khan and, and you've you've slayed him and the Mongol invasion has been thwarted, Lord Shimura basically asks you to come back to your old training ground. And and Lord Shimura says that while he respects what you did for the island of Tsushima, he cannot respect you for your new ghostly ways. And you have a final duel, like an actual duel to the death in question mark um, of 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 the loser. And he says right out that he's going to kill you. That's what he's going to do. He has to do it. To, um, the Shogunate wants him to, to, to take you out. And that's the, the end of it. After, after you win that duel, you're left with the decision to spare Lord Shimura or to kill him. And the kind of shift from the main antagonist from the Khan to Lord Shimura is is interesting. It, it built over time. So it wasn't like a huge surprise, at least to me, when it happened. And I was just kind of curious what your thoughts were on that and whether or not you were a um, you granted the Lord his wish by by taking his head clean off or if you spared him. Um, so what's what, what was everybody's uh, process there? In my opinion, if you take the opportunity to kill him at the end, then Jin's whole process and his whole journey is kind of meaningless almost because the the final choice that, that you are given, if you were to kill him, then that is essentially you saying, yeah, the old ways are are what we have to we have to abide by you know he lost he's lost face he is dishonored so he has to die um he can't possibly live like this and and i'm gonna go ahead and kill him i did not kill him i i spared him 
because I felt like that is the conclusion that Jin would have come to through this is Jin breaking with with the hmm. old yep. traditional way uh, that he has been, you know, he started out adhering to this and has slowly kind of broken from it and and come to the conclusion that there is a better way and that there is, you know, a, a different way that his island and he personally need to follow. I felt like that would conclude in him choosing not to kill his uncle. And uh, so that's that's what I did. I did the almost the exact same thing, Leah, for the exact same reasons, because I feel like that if you're truly shedding the old way, that's what you're doing. Um, I also kind of did it. And I this is going to make me sound really petty. But by the whole end of that, like like Lord Shimura seemed really not thankful for all the stuff I had done for Sushima. And like at that point, he was like, please kill me. And I'm just like, you know what? No. Like, I just like, you know, live, live, live your life out to sound go do whatever you got to do. You know, it, it is kind of an F you to uh, to him to leave him alive. And he's like, oh, I'm going to try to hunt you down. And, and uh, in my mind at that point, I'm just like, yeah, bring it. You've tried it before. I'm good. Mm-hmm. Like, I just like it. Maybe that's a little bit. Maybe that's a really Western approach to viewing <laughs> that, like just being like uh, getting getting mad at him. But I just I felt so betrayed by this guy who was going to take me on as a son to now, like now because of your code. I have to die like I just I, I actually felt kind of personally affected by that so so maybe that maybe the game was successful in that regard then um, but yeah I spared him as well uh, mostly because I thought it would annoy him <laughs> so. oh I guarantee you it did yeah because he's going to be in trouble with the shogunate now you know cause yeah he, exactly oh you, you lost and you still didn't like he's probably yeah, going to be expected to take his own life possibly I, yeah. I don't yeah, know exactly but yeah. Uh, but yeah it's not going to look good on him um, I'll be I'd be very interested interested to see what uh, Sucker Punch does moving forward. I, I with the success of this game, I cannot believe in my heart that we do not revisit Lord Sakai or at least the island of Tsushima. So it'll be interested to see um, uh, where that uh, story may or may not lead. As far as the legacy of the game goes, it has. And I find this to be very interesting. Uh, one of the highest completion rates for any PlayStation games. It's a strong expression of the PlayStation first party formula where about 90% of it can be experienced in the first playthrough. Um, the Platinum Trophy is a, a very high. It's like one of the highest percentages for mm-hmm. Platinum Trophies. And you can kind of see that now Ratchet and Clank has a very similar high Platinum percentage um, that that Sony games seem to want you to be able to do the whole thing in one go. I'm not sure if maybe that's. Maybe I'm reading a little too much into the into it there, but it seems like that's kind of the experience they're looking for. So, uh, so yeah, a lot of people played it. A lot of people finished it. Uh, Nate Fox and Jason Connell, the game directors, have been honored as tourism ambassadors for Sushima Island. Uh, Fox and Connell spread the name and history of Sushima to the whole world in such a wonderful way. Even a lot of Japanese people do not know the history of the Genko period. When it comes to the world, the name and location of Sushima is literally unknown. So I cannot thank them enough for telling our story with such phenomenal graphics and profound stories. We also discussed the director's cut is upcoming. Um, it's going to add a new island and a new section. And I've, I'm looking forward. That's when I'm going to hit that new game plus button um, with the fancy Ooh. new PS5 stuff and, and do the new island. And that's I think that's when I'm going to hop right in there. Not even though we're going to have to kind of amend and not give it a full do. Um, we definitely have to talk about the Legends mode, which came out in October of 2020. They kind of just stealth dropped this in the fall and were just like, hey, next month we're adding multiplayer. And it's not just you hop into Sushima Island with somebody else. It's it's a completely separate co- cooperative game mode where you can pick one of four classes and you play with four people. 
Um, and it kind of is like a, a Diablo Destiny-esque. I mean, it still plays like Ghost of Tsushima, but you're collecting loot. You're customizing your class. Um, there's four classes. Um, Assassin, Ronin, Warrior, Archer. Um, I know, uh, Leah, you said that you played uh, some of it. I played I played about 15 hours of it with a buddy of mine. We played through all the main stories of it. We did the tale of EO. I don't think we finished it, um, but uh, the two player stories we did, we all did. And I found it to be pretty engaging. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Um, I played with Rich. We got through most of the uh, just the, the kind of story ish missions. And yeah, I mean, I they were they were accessible and in a good length kind of you know for like a, a individual missions mm-hmm. I, I i like that they were modular to the point that you can you know go back in with different people or different classes and you know it, it they were manageable chunks of time it wasn't like a situation i i, I did not get the opportunity to try the uh, the raid uh, unfortunately but um yeah it, it just kind of having the same type of gameplay but kind of remixed a little bit and and in mm-hmm. these um these kind of confined confined is the wrong word these um contained situations that you know you you can get through in uh in a sitting is uh a, a cool thing i think yeah. it would have been very easy to make it just a well you can duel somebody or you can uh drop a second person right. into your world even though that would yeah. make zero sense but <laughs> yeah. um yeah just yeah, gin but wearing a different color it's exactly. like you know, it's yeah. like a smash <laughs> alternate yeah exactly <laughs> but but yeah i i think this is a cool thing that they and i mean this was free also so yeah. like this is not yeah. something that they had to do uh and i i'm glad that they did it was it was well done from what i have experienced of it I appreciate that they also kind of cranked up the fantasy element as well. And it wasn't Uh just like... (laughs) Yeah, for sure. It felt like it would have been really... I mean, not easy because multiplayer modes built onto a single player engine is difficult under even the best circumstances. But like they could have just done something that was like a multiplayer way to experience the main story. You know, we've seen that kind of thing in like like Metal Gear before where you can just kind of tag along for somebody else's mission. We've seen that kind of thing in... Um, just cause and you know a lot of these types of of games that just kind of allow you to spectate and participate in somebody else's playthrough of the game whereas you know this felt like they were trying to kind of land it with its own visual look and feel and its own like its own kind of internal identity that it didn't need to succeed but the fact that they have it just comes across as very uh you really see the passion come through and it, it reads yeah. us very confident yeah. and very, uh, it kind of expands the, the brand as well. Um, they mm. did a good job. You know what it actually kind of reminded me of, and this is a weird comparison to make, but it actually kind of reminded me of the, uh, the two player mode in portal two yeah, yeah. where, yeah, where you have a lot of the same mechanics, but it's remixed in a different way that is completely separate from the, the single player mode. Uh, and, yeah, it's just it's just great. <laughs> and this is purely presumption on my end, but it, it reads to me as like the developers being like, hey, yeah, we had a lot of really cool ideas for this game. You know what I mean? And like we are, you know, we're, we're and we're constantly evolving, constantly working on them. And like and for this to kind of come out so quickly after the release of the game shows you that like mm-hmm. there must have been a significant portion of the development was like, well, how are, are we going to multiplayer focus this? What do we you know what I mean? And it's just it's really interesting to see that take shape and then come out as a free mode, you know, just to kind of play around with. And even if you only touched it just to kind 
kind of see what it was. Or if you're like someone like Rich who put 40 hours into it, like it just the fact that they provided you with that option. Is, it's really, really interesting. So just a couple final pieces of correspondence here before um, we move on uh, to our, uh, our summaries. Um, Dom's beard on the forum says, I had no interest in Ghost of Tsushima. However, after The Last of Us 2 left a sour taste in the mouth, I wanted a AAA game to get stuck into. So I picked up Tsushima. I then went on to 100% the game and I loved every little bit of it. The story, though formulaic, is great with some genuine heartbreaking and touching moments, some unexpected. The standoff system, as basic as it is, I'm still not bored of and makes you feel powerful. The progression is also great. I walked into the final boss fight feeling like a character, like as a character, Jin and as the player, we had both grown and were powerful to smash that final boss to pieces. The ending forced me with a difficult choice and a decision I still think about now. I've never read the alternative option to what I chose. I'd say the biggest praise I could give it was my game of the year in 2020 in the year that an amazing remake had one of my favorite games of all time came out in Final Fantasy VII. I bought the art book. I've got the hoodie. I love Ghost of Tsushima. It was the first thing I put on when I got my PS5, and it's insanely beautiful. I just need to get some friends to try the Legends mode that I have not touched that yet. With a little bit less of a positive impact um, on the forum was Whipple Dip. Um, I'm about to get real critical about this, so I should say straight up, I liked this game, but it is best completely average or competently average, excuse me. First, I'll reiterate what others have said. It looks incredible, and the production design and artistry is up there, some of the best on the console. It runs fantastically, even on my old 2014 PS4, and it's pretty good at me being mostly bug-free. Whatever in-game detection system it has is real good. Every time I got stuck floating between rocks while climbing, it would manage to get me back to solid ground. The combat is very fun and satisfying and gives you a decent amount of leeway to tackle objectives, except for story missions, but the set-piece design of them goes a long way to ensuring that isn't really a problem. But for a big-budget flagship game, this is hands-down some of the worst writing I've ever seen. It's just atrocious. Jin is a tabula rasa, a flat and emotionless robot who seems to react to the world around him with a complete lack of recognition. Every time in a cutscene, it cuts to a quick shot of him staring blankly at whatever mouthpiece he happens to be standing near. I laugh. He gets the chance to sign in some areas, but they are the rare exception. There aren't really any characters in this game. There are faces that just reel off line after line of exposition to tell you the emotionally stunted player, how you should be feeling and reacting and how to solve the problem they just laid out for you. Conversations feel like interactions between Twitter bots with sophistication of NPCs in San Andreas having their conversation on the street. Lines clip over top of each other. Lines have bizarrely, bizarrely long breaks between each other that kill any flow a conversation might have. Emphasis on words are in the wrong spot. Scenes are framed completely wooden, only with stock movement animations. It all culminates into a very clear view of the recording view and not people inhabiting a world. It was all such a disappointment for everything else to be so fantastic, but to end up being entirely in service of the most boring story possible. Even the main overall narrative, while a step up from those side stories, still felt very predictable and tropey, but was good enough, I guess, to spur you on from one area to the next. And lastly, from Mike Lawatt. I enjoyed Ghost of Tsushima immensely. It's the first game I've ever gotten the Platinum Trophy for, and there's just something about this game that I adore. It's visually stunning, even on a base PF4, on which I played it. I never bothered with, bother with photo mode in games, but frequently found myself being distracted by Ghost of Tsushima's photo mode, calling my non-gaming wife in to show off the beautiful captures that were possible. The visuals were complemented by the audio design wonderfully. I'm looking forward to giving another playthrough on my PS5 with the Pulse 3D headphones. I must admit that I did play the game in English after attempting it with the Japanese subtitles. I personally couldn't keep up with the dialogue and control the character at the same time, and I therefore switched to the English dubbing. But huge kudos to Sucker Punch for offering so many different ways to play the game visually and audibly. The combat mechanics of the game really suited me and I love the stance progression. It was extremely satisfying when you successfully parried an enemy's attack. Surprisingly, the standoff mechanic never got boring and I found myself indulging whenever possible. 
I think it's the detail that I love most about this game. The huge variety of apparel available, the haikus, reflective moments in the hot springs and the foxes made the game so enjoyable and so much more than a run-of-the-mill stealth hack and slash. The narrative was enjoyable but fairly straightforward, but the way in which it was presented was simply sublime. In the year that it gave us The Last of Us Part Two, an IP I hold as one of my favorites, I was surprised to find that Ghost of Tsushima was my game of 2020. Sucker Putt should be excep- exceptionally proud of this game. I absolutely love it. So, as always, we put out the call on Twitter, at Kane and Rince, for three-word reviews of Ghost of Tsushima. Um, so, starting off, we're going to see what you had to say in brief format. Toon Skatoon says, Hot Tub and Hero. Rich Spurs 24 says, Standoff's always epic. Dave Jackson says, Stunning Cinematic World. Kyenix says, Be the Samurai. Generic Miller says, Assassin's Creed Perfected. Sega Collection says, Beautiful, Fluid, Unforgettable. Saif says, Photogenic, Foxy, Fun. Connor Hawks says, Pet the Fox. Gautam Jayanthi says, Fox Petting Simulator. James McNabb says, Dual Composer Perfection. Kieran says, Satisfying Icon Clearing. Jason Lee says, One versus Many. Carl says, sad haiku sim. Uh, Tapir says, presentation creates perfection. And our own Rich Davison says, superb samurai, samurai simulation. So yeah, um, summing up the game, I mean, I guess I'll, I'll go first. I, I feel like we were all kind of, uh, we while having differing opinions, I think we all are in similar boats. Um, I, I can say I really just enjoyed most of what this game had to offer. I didn't I soured on some of the open world things my first time through and, and I, I didn't complete everything on the map, but I don't think that should be necessarily a game's goal. Like it's up to me whether or not I want to engage with all the sub little things to do on the side and, and whether or not I find them repetitive or or engaging. That's a lot of times up to personal taste. And, and I got pretty tired of some of those things. But what I never got tired of at all, and it was just so apparent over the last month when I've been dipping back in is just being riding around on the island of Tsushima. Um, I there's something about the visual language of this game that, that it almost feels it almost cheapens it to talk about it. And that might sound like very hoity toity, but like it just you can't you can't accurately describe how that game looks and how it feels to be interacting with it. And that's to me like video games at their highest, like you're interacting with a visual medium. And when that when they can just nail it in such a way that makes you f- physically and emotionally affected by what's happening on the screen they've just they've just succeeded on such a level and you could dismiss some of the story as a little tropey and some of the side activities as monotonous and i think those are all valid criticisms but for me the the narrative and the side activities were just more ways that i could interact with that world and i am absolutely thrilled to jump back into the director's cut next month and i am very much looking forward to seeing what sucker punch does next because this to me feels like an almost complete success of a video game how about you ryan yeah you know i think we're all pretty positive on this one um, and i'm not going to deviate from that i i kind of wish that there was somebody on the on the panel here who was uh who did have one of the more kind of negative opinions because just speaking um speaking on my own experience and what i've observed from the community there are a pretty like consistent group of people who i i think don't really appreciate this game and that's entirely fair like opinions are going to vary on a lot of things but i get the sense that the people that don't like this game tend to really uh, tend to almost be confused by the <laughs> by the 
general like love and affection that others have put onto it. And it's, I think it like there's a, uh, without trying to speculate for on somebody else's thoughts and feelings, if they're not able to be here to, you know, defend their own, their own points. Like I see where they're coming from, from a gameplay perspective, Ghost of Tsushima is really nothing terribly new. Like it is a fairly low friction, open world kind of collect them up with a decent to good story, but like no one element other than the, you know, graphics are going to be something that you're really going to carry with you for the rest of your life. But I think that's just the kind of game that I'm looking for these days is like, I just want a beautiful place to be. Uh, you know, I'm one of the explorer types of gamers. Like I like existing in beautiful places. I like finding all the little secrets. I like looking at the uh, standing on the cliff tops and looking over a storm cloud coming up on the, on the beach. And, you know, I, I love taking all of that in feeling like I'm somewhere else. And Ghost of Tsushima really transports me like no one else. I will say that, like the one big takeaway that I had from this one is I really hope that more games end up using the wind like uh like they did in this game. Like this feels like the big, you know, this is like the uh the nemesis system of Ghost of Tsushima. Like this is the big central <laughs> mechanic for me is like how revolutionary it feels to have that assisted navigation as a part of the world that doesn't distract you. You know, it's like that kind of next logical step, you know, when um dead space put your health and ammo on the uh the back of of the main character and allowed you to exist in that world for a little bit longer when uh the crew put its driving lines as like floating in world objects above the roads that you're racing on instead of making you look down at the uh mini map in the corner like that you know all of these steps to integrate UI into the game world feel futuristic and feel like the way that things should be heading and so just the the uh the elegance of the solution of uh you know not projecting something obviously false or holograms or anything into the game world like you see a lot of games doing but using something as natural as the way that the leaves are blowing in the wind to give you a push in the right direction like that that's brilliant and uh, i hope it catches on i'd love to see that in the next zelda game i'd love to see that integrated widely and um let's get those ui interfaces off the uh, off the screen let's take in more of this world leah uh you can pet the foxes 10 out of 10 would recommend <laughs> um i i i i think I, I don't have a ton to add um i i really like games that give you a lot to do but doesn't make it feel like a chore and i i think that for me at least um obviously this is not a universal thing um as, as we've heard from some of our correspondents that that it can feel a little too busy but sushima really worked for me uh, i i thought that the the side missions even when they did feel a little uh samey after a while they were always really beautiful they were always you know, something that I got something out of doing, and I don't necessarily mean a reward, you know, a, a physical thing that I could equip on my character. Uh, I just, I, I felt like doing them was benefiting me. Like I, I enjoyed it. Um, so yeah, I, I, I completely agree with, uh, with 
um, Ryan, what you were saying about the wind mechanic. I, I love it. I, uh, I, I thought that it fit perfectly and I, um, yeah, it's, it, this is a really pretty game and it, it, I, when I say that it's easy to play, I, I don't necessarily mean that the combat is super easy. It can be. There's difficulty levels to where you can uh, you can bump it down uh, to be you know very very casual in, indeed. And I don't think that it takes anything away from the game itself to do so. Um, so yeah, it. I think that this is one of those games that for me, it felt very easy to get into. Um, it's not perfect. Uh, it, there are, there are things that I still kind of sighed and rolled my eyes at, but I, I had a really good time playing it. Uh, I've put a lot of time into it and, um, yeah, I, I would recommend giving it a shot. Uh, and, uh, I, I think that, uh, in particular, just the visuals. Man, that lighting. I'm telling you, I don't know <laughs> why this game specifically uh, got me with the lighting, but it sure did. So, uh, yeah, that's that's where I stand. All right. Well, it remains for me, Brian, to thank you, Leah and Ryan, as well as our correspondents. Um, and plus, of course, all of you for listening. Also, a huge thanks goes to Rich Davison for doing all the prep work for the show, including the show notes and and really helping get this show off the ground rich uh, i can't tell you how much as i the person who hosted it uh, appreciated your work and effort next time in issue 479 we continue the journey of the dragon of dojima himself kazama kiryu in yakuza kawami 2 